Amen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Well, we saw some weeks ago in Acts chapter 6 that there was this, uh, you know, these false witnesses that rose up and brought accusation against Stephen. And their accusation was that he uh, didn't cease to speak blasphemous words um, against this holy place. They were talking about the temple and against the law, speaking of the law of Moses. And in Acts chapter 7, we looked last week at Stephen's defense. And again, uh, a pivotal chapter. And in Stephen's defense, he basically said, you know, God's not interested in religion. He's interested in relationship. You know, the Jews thought that they were righteous in the eyes of God because they had the temple there in Jerusalem. You know, in reality, the temple in Jerusalem, it's just a place, right? It's not possible uh, to house God in a temple because the heaven uh, and the heavens of heavens uh, Solomon declared, can't contain the Lord. God's bigger than, than the heavens. He's bigger than a temple. And Solomon said, how much less then, in light of who God is, how much less this temple can house him. And then, you know, the, the Jews, they thought that they were righteous because they kept the law, which essentially just procedures, right? Uh, it's a set of do's and don'ts, which they meticulously lived by, right? They tried to accomplish them with this outward righteousness. Theirs was a, a works-based righteousness. They thought that they gained favor in the eyes of God outwardly by doing good works. But Stephen, he told them that righteousness didn't result uh, in a person's life because of a place or by keeping some procedures. Righteousness comes from a person. And that person's the person of Jesus Christ, whom they rejected and they murdered. And upon hearing this, as you would expect, the religious leaders, they just go crazy, right? Uh, they were cut to the heart, it says, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And while the crowd was uptight and angry and bitter and going all crazy, Stephen was tranquil and at peace and his face uh, was uh, appeared like the face of an angel we read in that chapter. Given the circumstances, you think, how is that even possible? It was possible because, you know, while the mob of angry men were looking down on Stephen, Stephen was looking up to Jesus. And, and, and you know, it begs the question, is there a lesson here for us to learn? I mean, it, 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 the answer, of course, is Yes. The Bible says that these things are written for our admonition. They're written for our learning. That through the, the patience and comforts of the scriptures, you know, we, we might have hope. And the lesson for us is when it seems like the world is crashing down all around us, when it seems like, you know, people are coming down on us, when it seems like things are just falling apart, the wise thing to do is to look to Jesus. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus said, John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, it's a promise. You're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, Jesus said, I have overcome 
the world. One of my favorite verses is found in Ephesians 2, 14. Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, for he himself is our peace. When it seems like everything's falling apart, when it seems like the world is crashing down all around us, there's no way of fixing it or stopping it. Things are just falling apart, coming down. As believers in Jesus, we have the privilege of looking to him. This world's not our home. You know, when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, when we confessed our sins and turned from them, forsaking our old lifestyle and turning toward God, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. You know what? We're now headed towards heaven, right? Because he's overcome the world. And because of that fact, we can have rest, right? We can trust in him, knowing that one day he promised that he will come again and receive us to himself so that where he is, we will always be there with him, enjoying his presence for all eternity. And like Stephen, we can be at peace even when the enemy is hurling false accusations and throwing stones at us. So now the story continues in Acts chapter 8. Now Acts chapter 8 is actually, it's a turning point in the Bible, right? God's plan has always been for the message of his love, his mercy, is to go out into the world. But practically, even though it was God's plan, it hadn't yet happened to any great extent, right? Uh, but starting with the martyrdom of Stephen, there's, there's some changes that have occurred in the church. Something changes here in Acts chapter 8. And that's that all the believers were scattered abroad. And whatever place that they were scattered to, they took the gospel. Then in verse 1 it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. This Saul that's mentioned here is the man that he's going to be known as Paul the Apostle. And it says here that he was consenting at this time, before he was a believer, consenting to Stephen's death. Now, the Greek word translated, translated consenting here, it means to approve of, to be pleased with. It means to applaud. Uh, it can also be translated voting for, which implies that Saul at this time was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, that ruling body, kind of the Supreme Court of Israel, if you will. Uh, will. Saul wasn't actually a thrower of stones. He's much too sophisticated for that, right? But he cast his votes approving of Stephen's death, and it pleased Paul. Pleased Saul. He applauded it. Now, as I said, Acts chapter 8, it's a turning point in the church. In 8.1, it continues to say, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time the church was targeted and persecution uh, was directed to the church as a whole. Right In the past, you'll remember Peter and John, they were arrested. They were picked up by the religious leaders. They were placed in custody. They were severely threatened uh, before they were released not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. You'll also remember that after that, all the apostles were arrested and beaten before they were uh, released. But here, this is the first time that we see for the first time, persecution is directed specifically as, at the church as a whole. And as a result of this persecution, we read verse 1, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, it's interesting to me. Back in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus told his disciples, saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. However, Jesus also told them, hey, tarry here in the city of Jerusalem until, uh, you know, you're endued with power on high. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth, right? The disciples were told after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they were to go into all the world and make disciples. And to be honest, they didn't do it. So God allowed this persecution into their lives to help to get them going, right? It says in verse 1, it says, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Now, there happens to be two Greek words that can be translated scattered. One means uh, to be scattered to the wind so that it disappears. And the other one, the one that's used here, it's the word uh, is used of scattering seed, right? It's, it's the word used for sowing seed. Scattering for the purpose of distribution. You know, I found in my life, there's an easy way and there's a hard way. Have you discovered that? I, I don't know why. You know, I, I tend to take the hard way. But the easy way and the hard way, I think it speaks to the will and the purposes of God in our lives. And I think that the lesson is if God tells us to do something, it's far better and easier on us if we just obey, right? Otherwise, God will sometimes allow, you know, difficulties, hardships to come into our life uh, to get us going. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's the way that God always works. But I think there are times that God boxes us in, Right? To the point that the only thing that we can do is obey. And you know what? Thank God for it, actually. Thank God for it. Right? He does it because He loves us. He's not willing to just leave us to our own devices. You know, some of my favorite verses in the Psalms found Psalm 119, starting with Psalm 119, verse 67. And it says this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then Psalm 119, verse 71, it's a string of verses. Verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then Psalm 119, 75, I know, O Lord, that, uh, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Right at times, God allows hardships into our lives because it's actually the best things for us. He allows it because that he loves us, right? It causes us to look to him. It causes us to cry out to him. Verse one, it says, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It would seem that the apostles stayed behind in order to, to continually be a witness to the religious leaders in Israel, as well as to reach out to the lost sheep of Israel. But eventually they too are going to go. And verse 2 says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. I mean, verse 2 to me is so very sweet. Luke is letting us know that not all the Jewish people, not all the leaders for that matter, hated the church. There were devout men among the Jews who carried Stephen away and gave him a dignified burial. In verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It says Saul made havoc of the church. The, the Greek word translated there, havoc, is the word used for, uh, of an army that's destroying a city. It's used of a wild animal mangling and ripping into its prey. You know, it's used to describe a wild boar when wounded, right? A wild boar, when, when he's wounded, goes into a rampage, losing all sense of sanity. And that's exactly what happened to this man named Saul. He was bred to be a refined religious scholar. He was a gentleman, right? He was a, a citizen of Rome, a Roman citizen. He sat and he learned at the feet of Gamaliel, one of Israel's most revered teacher. 
Saul was head and shoulders above every other student of the law, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, he said. He was well on his way of becoming one of the greatest leaders of the Jewish faith. But then he loses all sense of sanity. Uh, he first just consented to the death of Stephen. But here in verse 3, we read that he goes door to door, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. You know, I guess you could say a good thing about Saul is he didn't kill every Christian he came against or came about, right? But he made no distinction between men and women, dragging them both off to prison. And Paul later writes of himself, Galatians 1.13, he said, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. His goal was to eradicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that, to eradicate those who gave themselves to Jesus as the Messiah that placed their faith in him. Look at what Paul says in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. He says, Indeed, I myself thought, I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul thought that all that he did, he did in the service of God, right? He shut many of the saints up in prison, both men and women. And he says he punished them often in every synagogue, compelling them to blaspheme. In other words, Paul held a knife to the throat of believers and threatened to kill them if they didn't blaspheme Jesus, you know? The only thing that would save their life was to renounce their, their faith in Jesus Christ. And some, I'm sure, did renounce Jesus out of fear, out of a sense of panic, right? And I'm certain that others, many others didn't, right? Paul killed them. Many that held fast to their confession of faith in Jesus. And being exceedingly, Paul says, not just a little bit, but being exceedingly enraged against them, Paul persecuted them to foreign cities. In other words, he took road trips to different countries, right, to hunt down Christians. And when he found them, he either killed them or he drug them off to prison. Later in life, it was something that Paul the Apostle deeply regretted. You know, he thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was doing all of this in, in the service of God. And he was thoroughly and utterly convinced he was serving God. By the way, Jesus said in the last days, the days that we're currently living in, it would happen uh, that persecution would rise up. And when uh, they persecuted you, they thought they th they're going to think they're doing it for as a favor to God, right? Jesus said, John 16, 2, he said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. You know, there is coming our way increased persecution. We are seeing the beginning of it in our country and it's just going to get worse. You know what? It's just going to get worse. God doesn't call us to to create political parties and, and, and stand against that persecution that's coming. What he calls us to do is to go forward in faith and tell people about Jesus Christ, regardless of, of what's coming our way. Well, anyway, Saul, he was totally convinced that he was pleasing God. But later on, he deeply, deeply regretted 
what he had done. Later on, he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Isn't it crazy how sin can blind a person? Have you ever thought of that? You know how people can think that they're doing something that's right, doing something that's pleasing to God, and yet being so far off, so wrong. They're willing to do abominable things, things completely contrary to God. And, and you know, they don't even recognize it. They don't even see it, right? There are so many things in, in my life that I've gave, given no thought to when I was doing them, that now I deeply regret them. You know, I don't know how people say, I live my life with no regrets. No, there's, I have such regrets. You know, so many things that I've done that I regret that I'm even ashamed of. And you know what? I wonder if there are any of us here, any of us that are listening, watching online, who are engaged in a sin, thinking it's okay, convincing themselves it's okay, lying to themselves that, you know, it's okay. That, you know, trying to convince themselves that God's okay with it when they know he's not. You know, I wonder if there's anyone here or anyone watching online who's, who's engaged in something right now that you will later come to deeply regret. You know, and if that's you, if, if, if that's you, God's heart for you is to repent, to simply turn from that sin and turn to him because there's grace and forgiveness for you. Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online and you're so ashamed of your past. You know, you're so afraid that if people knew, if they only knew the person that I've been, the things that I've done, they would reject you, reject you outright. And, and you know what? If that's you, you might want to read what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.20. John said, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. Right? The good news is God doesn't condemn us. He offers each of us. He offers you forgiveness and healing. And you know what? I've heard people, they've, as I've said this before in the past, people have said to me, you know, Gary, you don't know what I've done. You know, you don't know what I've done. How can God forgive me? And my response is always, it's true. I don't know what you've done. I don't uh, know what has occurred in your past. But Paul said, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16, Paul said, and I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who, is an who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. That Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. I love this section of scripture because what Paul is saying is, if I can be saved, someone who blasphemed God, someone who persecuted the church, persecuted the church to death, by the way, someone who was so lifted up in pride, if God's grace and love is able to reach out to me for salvation, someone who is the chief of sinners, right? He can save you too also. And he'll extend that forgiveness to you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, all because of the great love that he has for you. You know, if you're here, if you're watching online and the Lord is speaking to your heart right now, my encouragement is to surrender. To surrender and turn to him. Confess your wrongdoings right now. Just before the Lord, forgive me. And receive his love and forgiveness. And move on with your relationship with him. Verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Don't think of those who were scattered as formally trained ministers of the gospel. Don't think of them 
as ordained pastors and missionaries because they weren't. They were accidental missionaries, right? As the persecution of the church increased, people began to flee. And everywhere they went, they just talked about Jesus. Paul was actually trying to put out the fire. And in doing so, he caused embers to rise up, which started fires all over the place. You know, it just makes me wonder. As I read this, as I study this, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder about Calvary Chapel Truckee. I mean, we're all called as disciples of Jesus Christ to go into all the world. Doesn't mean, you know, across the ocean, but it does mean across the street, you know, uh, into our neighborhoods, amongst our friends. We're all called to go into all the world, make disciples. Each of us also have suffered some degree of persecution for our faith. Are we telling people about Jesus? Are we preaching the word? And, and it's interesting. The phrase preaching the word there in verse 4 can be misleading, right? Literally in the Greek, it just means sharing the good news. It just means that wherever we go, we're to share with others what Christ means to us, what Jesus has done in our lives. In my life, he's done so much. And it's important that we, that we do do this because I don't know if you know this or not. It's important for us to share because most people come to the Lord through a friend, right? Someone they've watched, someone they know, someone that told them about Jesus. They don't usually come to the Lord through a formally trained pastor or evangelists, right? They come to know Jesus through people just like you and me. How wonderful is verse 4? It says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Reminds me of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Again, it's, it's just an example of the promise of God that he has for each of us as believers. God is working, regardless of how things may appear. Romans 8, 28, you guys know the verse and probably can quote it with me. It says, and we know. Hey, we know this. We know this. We know that we know that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. No matter what your circumstances are, if you love God and you're a son or a daughter of his, then all things are working together for your good. Hey, I, I want to remember and I want to remind people, hey, events individually can be difficult, can be overwhelming, but all of it together, God works for our good. He is at work. Verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Philip was one of the deacons chosen to serve the widows back in Acts chapter 6, as was Stephen. He was a man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was a man who had a heart to serve. And he didn't see serving tables as something that was beneath him, right? Due to the persecution, it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Even though Samaria is north of Jerusalem, right, and the eyes of um, the Jews, you go up to Jerusalem. When you leave Jerusalem, you go down, right? So Philip went down to the city of Samaria, right? Samaria, if you don't know this, and I'm sure you do, Samaria was despised by the Jews. They hated the Samaritans. Because what happened in 721 BC, when the Syrians took the 10 northern tribes of Israel into captivity, they then moved into the region and began to intermarry with the Israelites. 
uh, who were impoverished and left behind. And the result was that the people uh, that came from that intermarrying, you know what? They weren't true Jews. They weren't all Jewish. And they weren't all Gentile. They were half-breeds, if you will, right? They were mongrel dogs in the eyes of the Jews, right? And the Jews hated them. And they were to be avoided at all costs. So much so that when a Jew went up to Jerusalem or, uh, you know, vice versa, right? They would happily, coming from the north, going to Jerusalem or going from Jerusalem, going to the north, they would happily add a couple days to their trip, right? In order to go around Samaria instead of taking a direct route through Samaria. It was worth it to them. And you might remember John chapter 4, when Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink of water, right? Remember how surprised she was saying, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John in that verse adds a little commentary to the story. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Right? The Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans. And the feeling was mutual. The Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. And that's why it was so shocking when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, making the Samaritan out to be the hero of the story to the Jews. That was absolutely unthinkable. It was mind-blowing. right? And now it says in verse 4, though, that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. I mean, how cool is that? Philip doesn't go to Samaria to give them religion. He goes there and preaches Christ. He goes there to introduce them to Jesus. Philip's message was actually the same as Stephen's. Righteousness doesn't come by going to a place. Right? You're not righteous by going to some church or temple one time or two times, three times, four times, you know, in a year. I mean, you can go to church every day of the week. It doesn't make you righteous, right? And it can't come through keeping some rules and regulations, you know, uh, keeping some code, doing some good deeds, walking old ladies across the street. You can get a merit badge for that. But it doesn't count for eternity. Righteousness in the eyes of God only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It only comes through trusting in Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice. By believing in the finished work of the cross. By placing your faith in Jesus as your Savior. By turning from your sins, turning towards God. It's the only way to be right in God's eyes. And Philip preached that message. He preached Christ. And that needs to be our message when we share Jesus. Jesus was Paul's message even after he got saved. After he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Keep your finger here in Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Acts you go from Acts, you go to Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, you get 2 Corinthians, too, too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, are you there? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. He says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of the power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Jesus needs to be the message that we preach. Verse 6 says, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. It says they heeded. In other words, they listened to, right? They received what Paul had to say. 
But interestingly to me, it says hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. You know, the reason I think it's interesting is because we usually associate miracles only with seeing, right? But it says in verse 6, it clearly says, and they heard miracles. They heard them. Now, I believe it's talking here uh, probably about a word of knowledge where the Spirit gave Philip some insight into a person's life that only they could know. Maybe it was a word of wisdom, in the case, as in the case of Stephen. Uh, maybe when they tried to dispute with Philip, right? Such wisdom is given to him by the Holy Spirit that it's irrefutable. And maybe yet, it was a word of prophecy that Philip spoke, right? Where Philip spoke God's word, and it was like he was delivering the mail right to their hearts. You know, it reminds me of a time when I was leading the men's ministry in Calvary Chapel, Corvallis, right? Uh, we had a men's Bible study every Tuesday morning and we sat around a U-shaped table. I've told this story to the guys in, in our morning Bible study, Tuesday morning Bible study, but we used to sit around this U-shaped table. Had a pretty good size a group of guys, 30, 40 guys. And uh, I can remember we were studying through 1 Samuel and we got to the place where Samuel describes the behavior of the king. And he tells him, he says, hey, listen, the king, he's going to take your sons for various positions. He's going to take your daughters to work in various roles. He's going to take your lands. He's going to take the produce of your lands. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take your donkeys and put them in his work. And Samuel describes all these terrible things that a king is going to do. And then he adds to it, and you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord's not going to hear you in that day. And the people basically said, we don't care. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be like Jimmy down the street or Johnny down the road. Whatever they said, probably not Jimmy or Johnny. And as, as we're going through this in the study, I make the analogy how people today, you know, how, how they'll do things they know that are just not good for them, right? That literally are bad for them, you know? And they don't care about the hardship or the, the ills that it's going to bring into their life. And I use the example of smoking. <laughs> it says right there on the pack of every single pack of cigarettes, man, it's going to cause cancer, probably lead to your death. Uh, if not, a bunch of various other diseases. You know, in Europe, they put pictures of people on respirators or people that uh, their jaws gone or whatever the case to dissuade people from smoking. But as I begin to make this analogy, there was a guy, I'll never forget it. There was a guy to my right. I wasn't very familiar with him. He looked like he was pretty rough. He looked like he was probably a smoker. And I did want to look at him and, and, and have him think I was picking on him as I make this analogy. So I look over to my left, Right? And I just talk about how bad cigarettes are and people, they don't care. They're just going to do what they do. Next Sunday, a friend of mine came to me at church and he says, hey, Gary, I just want to let you know I gave up smoking. I'm like, what? Like, total disbelief. Larry, you're a smoker? And he says, you know I'm a smoker. I've tried to hide it, but, you know, you looked right at me Tuesday and mention how people know smoking's bad for them, how they know it's going to kill them, that it's not what God wants for them. But they do it just the same. I said, Larry, I had no idea you were a smoker. I mean, I wasn't looking at you. I was just trying not to look at him. You know, nobody knew Larry was a smoker. You know, he was, he was able to hide it from everyone. But God had me... Unbeknownst to me, God had me look towards him. Unbeknownst to me, God spoke to Larry's heart, telling him, it's time to quit, man. And uh, I don't know if that was a word of knowledge or if it was some prophetic utterance uh, directed towards Larry. But like the mailman, I didn't know what was in the letter. <laughs> I actually didn't even know there was a letter, you know. 
but I delivered the mail. And that's how God works. And I think that that's what it's talking about here, how they heard things that Philip, heard miracles that Philip uh, had done. And verse 7 says, For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many were paralyzed and lame, uh, who were paralyzed and lame were healed. People were being delivered from unclean spirits. People that were paralyzed and, and unable to walk are being made healed. Now those were the sight miracles. In verse 8 it says, And there was a great joy in that city. As a result of Philip's preaching Jesus in Samaria, there was a great joy just throughout the entire city. This was the greatest revival Samaria had ever seen, right? And the city was filled with great joy as a result of Philip preaching Christ, as a, as a result of people being saved. I want to close with a couple of things right here. First, I want to recognize that seven years earlier, Jesus was in Samaria planting seeds, right? But when Philip comes along and shares Christ, a great number come to faith in Jesus, right? Philip was able to reap a harvest of the seeds that were planted by Jesus, right? We all wish and hope, we all long uh, for an opportunity, for a chance to reap a great harvest. But the truth is, most of us, you know, we're not going to be Billy Grahams. We're not going to be Gray Glories. We're not going to have opportunities to lead a thousand or two thousand people to the Lord at one time. Most of us will be seed planters and waterers. And honestly, it can be hard and it can be discouraging. You know, the ground can be so very hard and rocky and it can take a lot of work to get that ground broken up, to prepare that ground in order to receive the seed. You know, there was a time I was very discouraged about this. You know, it seemed like I was always sowing seed, but I never saw a harvest. And I began to cry out to the Lord and, and just ask the Lord about it. And I believe the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, you know, Gary, a farmer doesn't always plant seed. There comes a time where he's going to harvest. And you know, I believe that with all my heart. You know, people tell me all the time, oh, hey, it's rocky ground here in Truckee. Or, oh, hey, it's rocky ground over there and rocky. You know what? It's all rocky. It's all rocky. But guess what? If we sow the seed, there will be a harvest. You know, it's, it's easy, though, to lose heart sharing Christ, right? Never seen anyone come to the Lord. But in Galatians 6, 9, it says, here's the encouragement for us. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7 through 8 says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters... But God who gives the increase, that's what it's all about. It's not about me or you, it's about God. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive a reward according to his own, to, uh, his own labor. You know, it's totally a privilege to share Jesus Christ with anybody, especially people that don't know him. Right? And amazingly, God is going to reward us as we do it. The second thing I want us to realize is there was great joy in the city because Philip preached Christ. Everywhere the gospel is preached, there's joy. We have this wonderful privilege of preaching Jesus Christ. And surprisingly, maybe you've experienced it, I don't know, but surprisingly, every time I share Jesus with somebody who doesn't know him, you know, it's like being born again again. You know what? I mean, there's this great deal of joy in being reminded of where I was headed, right? And how much Jesus loved me. He loved me enough to reach down with a nail-pierced hand and pull me out of the muck and the mire and save me. And you know what my question is? How about you? 
Do you still experience a great deal of joy in regards to your salvation? Or has it diminished a little bit, right? You know, stuff happens. Hey, man, you know, life happens. And, and there's a busyness uh, to life. You know, always trying to make ends meet. Always trying to meet the demands laid upon us by a job or the demands laid upon us uh, by the family in general. You know, it, it, it is easy to lose focus, right? To unintentionally allow Jesus to slip from being the center of our life, right? To leave our first love behind. You know what happened to David, the sweet psalmist of Israel? Look at what it says, uh, Psalm 51, verses 10 through 13. This was David's prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. David asked for a renewed, steadfast spirit. And a restoration of joy of the Lord's salvation. It's interesting to me in that verse. Put that verse back up, please. It's interesting to me is this verse is so often misquoted. So often people will say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But that's not what it says. Right? David correctly asked that the Lord would restore to me the joy of your salvation. Right? That's what David said. That's what he wanted, the joy of your salvation. Lord, you saved me. I want that joy back, that joy that I experienced when you saved me. And then David says, then, then I'll teach and share with passion so that people, so that sinners will now be converted to you. You know, we come to church to meet with the Lord. We come to hear his voice. And, and you know what, my heart this morning as I was going through this study, my heart is if this morning you recognize that you've lost some passion of sharing Christ with others, you know, or that you've grown weary in sharing, you've grown weary in doing well, not seeing any results, you've let Christ slip, you've left your first love behind, this is the time to ask God to meet you, to renew you, to restore you, to restore to you the joy you once had in his salvation. You know, the world has nothing to offer that can replace that joy. It's This morning is the time, if you hear his voice, to ask him, to ask the Lord, would you give me that joy again, please? Wherever you're at, if you're at home right now, just in the, the convenience of your front room, you can ask him. I believe that the desire of the Lord is to do that for us, to renew us, to refresh us, to restore us, to revive us. I believe that. To fill us. Right? And I'm not saying that, you know, as you ask the Lord to do this in your, in your heart, that you're going to have some you know, Holy Ghost shiver or some, you know, warm feelings wash over you, you know? Maybe that will happen. I don't know. But that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for a feeling. That's not what we're to seek after. I do believe that if we'll cry out to the Lord in faith, though, cry out in desperation uh, for Him, expecting Him to meet us, I believe that He will meet you. And I believe that God wants to use each of us here, each and every one of us that name the name of Christ, ordinary men and women. I believe he wants to use us in a similar way as he used Stephen and Philip. Will you receive that this morning? You know, will you act upon that in faith? Let's pray. Take, a, take down that slide, please. Let's pray. Let's just take a few minutes quietly before the Lord. Pour out your heart to him. You know, if you need to, make confession to him. Confess to him how much you need him. 
Confess your need for refreshment, for restoration, for renewal, for revival. We need that. Lord, I need that. Lord, fill us afresh with your joy. Lord, we ask for that fresh refilling, renew for us that joy that we, that we once had when we were saved. Give us again a desire, a hunger, a thirst for opportunities to share you with everyone we meet, with our family, with our friends. Lord, forgive us for leaving our first love behind. Help us remember where we've fallen and repent and redo those things that we used to do. Lord, those things we used to do when we walked closer to you. This is a time just to pour out your heart before the Lord. Psalm 62 says, Trust in him at all time, you peoples. And pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge. We're safe to make confession to the Lord and to ask him to move in our hearts. Lord, I know as a church, we, we've faced difficult times and it can be discouraging, Lord, when we get our eyes on the circumstance. Lord, help us fix our eyes on you. As you replant Calvary Chapel Truckee, Lord, Use us for your glory to share your love, your mercy. Use us. Fill us. Fill us afresh, Lord. Give us a hunger for your word. Help us to be quick to pray or to, to be in a constant attitude of prayer as we go throughout our day. Lord, meet us. Meet us. Let revival start right here in us, in me. Lord, we ask it in your name, Jesus. And Lord, we, we believe that you hear the prayers that are according to your will. I believe this is your will for us, Lord. We ask it in your name, Jesus. And, and we look forward to seeing you fulfill these things in us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.